0: You're listening to a Dwell Community Church production. If you'd like to check out more resources, visit dwellcc.org. We're in James chapter five tonight, and we are gonna be talking about the perils of wealth. James is talking about what it looks like to be a mature Christian. And we've been looking at topics that he's been throwing out there, like the mature Christian understands God's wisdom, that God's way of doing things is not the same as our natural way of doing things. That a mature Christian is going to live in tension with our culture because our values are not going to be the same. God's values are not like man's values. Then the last time we were here two weeks ago, we were talking about how the mature Christian brings God into their decision-making process That they don't make huge life decisions without a lot of prayer, a lot of reflection, a lot of connecting with other people and trying to understand how to live God's priorities out in their lives. Tonight, we're going to be talking about how the mature Christian understands the potential perils of wealth. And James really just lets rip here. He says, come now, you rich Weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, your garments have become moth-eaten, your gold and your silver have rusted, and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you and the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of the Sabbath. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure, and you have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. Okay. That's pretty intense. But he's talking about an issue that's really important. And what he's really doing here is he's issuing an important warning about the perils of wealth. Now, James, this isn't the first time in this book that he's brought up the concept of rich people or the rich, the wealthy. In James chapter 2, he said, don't show them favoritism. There was an issue where, you know, someone would come in with a prestigious background with a lot of wealth, and they would give them the good seats at the meeting, and they would be like, you poor person, go sit over there on the floor. We have someone important here. And we talked about, when we studied chapter two, we talked about that this is not the way that God values or estimates value in people. Their income is completely and totally insignificant in the eyes of God, and if we want to be followers of God, then what somebody makes or what their net worth in is, has no bearing whatsoever in the value of a person. The value of a person is esteemed, estimated by the fact that they are created in the image of God. And the fact that all of us are created in the image of God means that we all have the same value. Jesus came and died on the cross for every single person who's ever been born. And so as far as God's concerned, we're all his children and we're all worth dying for. And that's the value. That's how we derive value from God's perspective on human life. He talked a little bit in chapter 2 about how the rich were oppressing the poor, how they were taking them to courts. He was like, why are you being nice to these guys? Why are you giving them special treatment? They're treating you unjustly. And so he got into that in chapter 2 And now in chapter 5, he's getting into more of these perils of wealth, and he says, weep in more. He warns them that riches can bring you misery, which when you talk about the backward wisdom of God, that definitely stands against what we would call the wisdom of the world. We think the more wealth you have, the more comfortable you are, the more secure you are, and the happier you'll be. He says, that's not so. Riches can bring misery. He points out the fact that all of their riches that they use to buy stuff are eaten by moths and they rust and they rot and they are destroyed. There's nothing you can buy with money that won't deteriorate and eventually cease to exist. It doesn't mean that money has no value, but it means that it has no eternal value. That the things that money will get for you are things that cannot be with you as an eternal being who is going to continue to exist well after your body is gone. Your money will do you no good in terms of the material comforts that you will acquire. He also points out to them that they are accountable to God for how they use their riches. He says, look, the world is unjust. People are suffering. People are starving. People are cold. People are hungry. People are without roofs over their heads. And if you choose to live luxuriously in the midst of all of that, God's going to have questions for you about why you live such a selfish life. That if you hoard wealth for yourself and allow suffering to go unimpeded, then you're really not understanding the fact that God is saying we are His family and every life matters. It's also interesting to note, I think, what James doesn't say. What James doesn't say is it is evil to be wealthy. You actually won't find that in the Bible. There's some, you know, some who would read and they would say, yeah, being being rich is evil. And that's not the case. It's perilous. But that is not necessarily the same as being evil. He doesn't say all wealthy people are evil. Wiersbe, in his commentary that I really like on James, called uh, Growing Up in Christ, says, Instead of giving up when troubles come, the mature believer turns to God in prayer and seeks divine help. The immature person trusts in his own experience and skill or else turns to others for help. While it is true that God often meets our needs through the hands of other people, this aid must be the result of prayer. James did not say it was a sin to be rich. After all, Abraham was a wealthy man, yet he walked with God and was greatly used of God to bless the whole world. James was concerned about the selfishness of the rich and advised them to weep and howl. He gave three reasons for his exhortation. So I think Wiersbe is dead on in his tracking of what it is that James is trying to say. Once again, whenever we get into the Bible, what we're trying to get into is what did the author mean? What was the author trying to say? And he's saying that there's a path to being rich and miserable, and he wants his audience to avoid that path. Don't be miserable and let your riches drag you down into moral degradation. And the way to do that is to acquire wealth through a moral means. That, you know, if you want to get rich and you're going to get wealthy, don't do it through thievery, dishonesty, and exploitation. That is a recipe for a disastrous life. You will never meet a strip club owner with a fulfilled life. I promise you that. They will not have a good marriage. They will not have healthy children. They will have a life. They very well may be rich and, in the eyes of the world, successful. But the way that they have earned that wealth through exploitation will stain and mar everything that is actually important in the world. And that's just one example. But if you treat people like they don't have value... It's not that God will judge you, it's that you will judge yourself. Your conscience will not bear up under the weight of being a terrible person. You cannot live a whole and fruitful life of kindness and love and relationship when your whole existence depends on the exploitation of others. And so the way that you earn your wealth is something to consider. He's saying don't use your wealth selfishly. You can be wealthy and you can be happy and you can be full and you can be content, but not if you exploit others and not if you live to lavish your wealth upon yourself, refusing to pay others what they deserve and hoarding your wealth for selfish use will also harden your heart, darken your care for your fellow man, and begin to ruin your relationships. Yes, you may have wonderful vacations and fancy cars, and you may have all the comforts of life, but there's a point that if you go beyond, you are actually continually doing yourself and your soul harm because of how selfishly you're living. This is not something that is unknown to science. They've done studies of this. We'll look at in a few minutes where they've actually done research to see how happy people are compared to their wealth. The third point would be don't allow wealth to rule you. Become a slave to your own money. And this is about when wealth becomes an end rather than a means, that there are people that have holes in their lives, and they are insecure, or they feel insignificant, or they have a desire to feel important, and their tax earnings at the end of the year are where they are deriving their value from. There are people that earn so much money, they never have to work another day in their life, but they continue to expand and grow and try to get more because they're trying to fill up a hole that can never be filled with money. Amazon has 935,000 employees worldwide. Jeff Bezos the founder and CEO of of Amazon, reached a net worth this year. I had to really study this number (laughs) because I wanted to make sure I put it out there correctly and I'm not used to dealing with this many zeros. That is $200 billion. He's the first person in history to have a net worth of $200 billion. There probably have been people who have been wealthier, but... Inflation and whatnot, $200 billion is his net worth. That's a number that is really, really difficult to get your head around. Let me tell you what this is. If he gave $100,000 to every one of those 935,000 employees, he would have $106 billion left. $100,000 to every one of those 935,000 employees. You can get your calculator out. I ran it and ran it and ran it. (laughs) He would have $106 billion left. That's how much money that is. Now, I don't intend to stink on Jeff Bezos or Amazon. That's not the point here. The point is, is how much is too much? How much is enough? Why do you go to work? Why do you continue to try to expand and grow anything when you reach a certain point where you could never in your entire life, no matter how hard you tried, spend even close to the amount of money that you have earned? It's because money at this point becomes a symbol of your success, of your value. Money doesn't become a way to accomplish the things that you want to accomplish. It becomes a marker of your personal value as a human being. And that is slavery. James says, don't spend your time and your precious energy and the few short years you have on this earth building a kingdom that will rot Weep and howl at the realization that you're living for the wrong things. Proverbs 37 through 9, this is one that's worth memorizing, guys. He says, Two things I asked of you do not refuse me before I die. Keep deception and lies far from me, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion, that I not be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or that I not be in want and steal and profane the name of my God. That is a healthy view of wealth right there. God, give me enough to have what I need to provide for those that I'm responsible for, but keep me from being rich and having it corrupt my soul and keep me from being poor and suffering from a lack of of, of needs. That is an understanding that wealth has a place, it has a purpose, that our physical needs are legitimate needs, but they're not the greatest needs, they're not the most important needs. A study at Purdue University, I mentioned this earlier, showed in 2018 that the university used a wide uh, set of data from the Gallup poll and found that the ideal income point for U.S. individuals is $95,000 for life satisfaction and $60 to $75,000 for emotional well-being. When people earned more than $105,000, their happiness levels began to decrease. Now I don't bring this up because I think that's a small amount of money, or because I think that's an incredibly large amount of money. I bring this up because as U.S. citizens, that is an amount of money that I would call neither poverty nor rich. That lines up pretty well. You know, what it costs to live and, and operate, $60,000, sixty dollars 60 to $75,000 for a household income. That might be two parents working together is considered the sweet spot for emotional well-being in America. And I don't think many of us reach sixty or $70,000 $75,000 and say, well, who could need more? But the, st- the study actually shows that people proportionately, as they make over $105,000, experience a degradation in well-being. Now, I'm not saying if you make more than $105,000, you must be a miserable person. I bet, you know, if you're a, 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 a walking Christian who's living your life according to the Bible, I bet you're giving a lot of that away. I bet you're doing a lot of cool things with it. I know that a lot of you are very generous with the work that we do here. And a lot of the money that you give goes to the poor in this city and around the world. And that a lot of us are making a good wage but that we're not making those mistakes. We're not making that wage through ill-gotten means. We're not selfishly hoarding it, and we're not using it to create a status for ourselves and to estimate our own value. So we're avoiding the perils of that wealth, but we need to be on guard. We need to be aware of the corrupting power of that wealth. We, everyone in this room... Everyone in this country is in danger of being corrupted by the power of wealth. Think about it. In our culture, it's socially acceptable, even admirable, to put your career before your marriage, before your children, before your friendships, and before your faith. You know, if you work really hard and you make a lot of money, people will say, well, you know... He hasn't done that well in the relationship department, but man, he's made a lot of money. I admire that person and and the cars that they drive and the home that they owe, the trips that they take. When that person is gonna die alone. They're gonna come to the end of their life and it's gonna be filled with regret because they're gonna realize the things that matter, the things that absolutely you can take with you, the only thing, is relationships. And all you care about at the end is that you have people to share your final days and years with. That's what people want. But we are blinded on the journey by the fascination of shiny things. Think about the example of the Pharisees. You know, the New Testament, especially the Gospels, is a record of these Pharisees Who were wealthy men, powerful men of influence in their culture. They were at the top of their society economically, religiously, and socially. They were considered the politicians, the men in power of their day. They were strict religious adherents. They believed in the Old Testament and the law of Moses. They were trying to obey what they believed to be the commands of God, and they were waiting for the Messiah to come. And when the Messiah did come, he was not rich. He was a hillbilly. He was born in Nazareth, the backwoods poduck part of Israel. He was a carpenter's son He wasn't particularly educated. And when he began to open his mouth and speak, he was saying things like, God is about love, and God is about relationship, and God is about reconciliation, and things like ritual, and things like law are things that are designed to lead us to relationship, but not to fulfill us in our relationship with Him. And that became a threat to the Pharisees. What did it threaten? Well, at first, it threatened their status because it contradicted their teaching. Where they said, if you obey the law, God will bless you, and if you disobey the law, God will curse you. And here Jesus comes along and says, if you love God and love your fellow man, you're fulfilling the whole law. And so it made them look bad, and they didn't like that very much. And then he went to the temple and he overturned the money tables and he interrupted their business where they were making money exchanging the the local currency for a temple currency and making a tidy percentage of themselves for themselves, and that's when they decided we're going to have to kill him. And so these pious, wealthy, educated men who had their identity threatened by their power and their wealth decided to murder the disciple, the Messiah, that they had been waiting for. That's the power of wealth to corrupt the way that you view the world. So weep and howl, James says. Because we must be concerned with the power that wealth can have on us. Now you might be like me as I studied for this and come to the conclusion, well, glad I'm not rich. Whew, that's safe. But there's a Chinese proverb, if you want to know what water is, don't ask the fish. If you want to know what wealth is, don't ask an American. You are wealthy, and so am I. We are the people James is talking about, very much so. And the overall scope of the world and the way that people live, you probably don't consider yourself wealthy. I know I would never attach that name to me, but we would say we're comfortable comfortable. But you're not supposed to be comfortable in this world. This world is supposed to be hard and rugged and difficult. And for 80, 90 percent of its inhabitants, that's exactly what it is. But for us, it's fairly comfortable. If you have a roof over your head and electricity connected to your house and running water and a car, you are wealthy by world standards the median annual household income according to Gallup for the world is $9,733. So anybody who makes more than that is doing better than the average. That helps put it in perspective. Of the whole world, the average household income, household income, $9,733. The United States is four times that amount. The median household income, annual income in the U.S. is 43585 I bet we'd be hard-pressed to find too many people in this room with a, a household income that low. We're actually doing pretty well as Americans. As far as Americans go, we're mostly ahead of the game, especially as we get into our 40s and 50s. We are wealthy. Poverty in the United States is real. I don't want to belittle it too much. But, you know, this is what poverty looks like mostly in the U.S. It's not until you travel abroad you start to see real poverty. People who are living in desperate situations. I had the opportunity when I was a sophomore in college So this was many moons ago, like 1997, to go and spend three months in China. And while I was there, I saw poverty like this. Children without roofs over their heads, living in piles of filth. There was one area that we stayed near. I was there for three months where every day the family would take a man who had no arms and no legs... And lay him face down on the sidewalk and put a bowl in front of him. And every day for eight hours, he would nod his head in front of the bowl in the hopes that people would drop money in. And that was his job. I had a pro- profound effect on the course of my life. I grew up in a fairly upper, upper middle class life. I had a lot of privilege, a lot of opportunity. I was going to college at Columbus State at the time. And I didn't know what I wanted to do. I was just going because mom and dad were willing to pay for it. And I was dropping as many classes as I was passing. I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. And I went and I saw real poverty. I met people who would never leave the six block radius of the place that they were born, of the dirt pile that they were born in. And they were just as smart and just as capable and just as valuable and just as able as I was. And yet I was squandering a college education Because mommy and daddy were willing to pay for it. I came home with a really different perspective. Because I understood how so many people live compared to the opportunities that I had. And I just want to encourage you to think about that. Because the passages here on wealth apply to you. You are the target audience here. Because you have so much opportunity, you have so much privilege, and you have so much ability, and you are in danger of the perils, as much as anyone who has ever lived, you and I are in danger of the perils of wealth, of becoming so comfortable that we become blind James's warning to the rich is that riches can blind you to the needs of others. You can become so comfortable and live in your world where there, you never go far and you live in your suburbs and you never really see any crime, any poverty. You never really deal with real issues in society because everyone has enough to be comfortable So you're never exposed to it, you never see it, you're never connected to it. Riches could cause you to treat people unjustly where you think, you know, you should use your power and your influence in order to build and protect your kingdom. And you begin to look at other people like they have less value. It creates dangerous self-focus where you think, I have to protect. The more you have, the more you have to protect what you have. And the way to protect what you have is to shut unreliable and untrustworthy people out of your circle, but those are the people who need Jesus Christ. Like the Pharisees, your wealth can cause you to begin to play for the wrong team. And we need, we really need to be aware that that's a thing. And we need to be aware of it in our 20s when we're like, I'm not making anywhere near 43. I made $12,000 on my tax return last year. It won't be long. It won't be but a few years where that will go to 30, 40, 50, 60, and up. And you need to understand these things as you're making 60, 70, 80, 90, 100, $200,000. These are warnings that are real about your soul, about the very heart of who God made you to be, and how you can be used by Him to set things right, to help people, to make your life about love and relationship. I'm not saying you need to give everything you have away. I'm not saying that you need to be ashamed of living a comfortable lifestyle. I'm saying be aware and be warned about the perils of what your wealth can do to corrupt your heart and rob you of your joy. A joy that can only be found in a relationship with Jesus Christ and in a loving connection with a community of other people. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for your miseries which are coming on you, James warns. So this would leave us and bring us down to that question, what can I do, right? Be aware. That's the main thing. Would that none of us would be deceived. That we would be on guard for the way that our wealth can damage our heart and corrupt our lives and ruin our marriages and break our relationships. Be aware. Keep straight in your head the priorities of God and what is important. Prioritize relationships over all other things. Your relationship with God first and foremost, but your relationship with others closely, Closely behind it. Don't put yourself in a situation where you're going to be getting older and moving away from people. But be putting yourself in a position that as you get older and you have more responsibilities and you have kids, be in a position where you can make it easier to ensure that you're going to continue to connect with people and to make relationships a priority. Be generous. And I'm not just talking about to the church. I'm talking about to each other. I'm talking about the people you don't even know. Hold your wealth loosely. Use it for good. Strive to be just in your dealings with others. Be very careful and cautious about taking advantage, especially when there's a power imbalance between you and someone else. Why not rather be wronged than to risk taking advantage of someone without means. Be accountable. You know, the things that we don't like to talk about in this culture, the things that are really hard and that no one wants to talk about are parenting, marriage, and money. Those are the forbidden topics that we don't get deep with each other on because when we're failing in those areas, the shame is intense. But those are three areas where if we don't, have people to help us, we are doomed to fail. Don't let anyone else be responsible for your money. But be willing to have conversations. I would love to know that people came away and they had conversations tonight where they were saying things like, you know, if I wonder if you feel if you if, what do you see? Am I overfocused on things? I want to invite you to speak into my life about those things. What if we had active conversations with one another where we weren't actually seeking out to confront someone else about what we thought about them, but we were legitimately and genuinely asking and inviting other people to help us keep our hearts straight? Wouldn't that be something? And, of course, draw near to God. Make your relationship with Him, Your prayer life with him, your time in the word, a high priority. Make that at the center of your life, and that will serve as a guide that will guide all your steps and keep you thinking about and keep you in tension as the world presents opportunities and lies and rewards for moving away from him. Stay connected with him and stay connected with each other, and you'll be far less likely to be self-deceived. I'll close with this. It's the words of wisdom from Paul to his son in the faith, Timothy. And I think it's a great summary of the warning that we've been studying here tonight. He said, But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness and godliness and faith and love, perseverance and gentleness. Thanks for listening. This has been a Dwell Community Church production.